0: is hit well in a center field that one's carrying out at center it's out of here oh johnny with a pinch hit home run at the plate is mike trout the pitch on its way it's blasted out to dead center field out of here ball gets away he's gonna break for the plate ball game is over the angels with a walk-off win here Bottom of the ninth inning. This is the Angels Recap Podcast, a review of the past week in Angels baseball. Here's your host, Trent Rush. What's going on, Angels Recap? The podcast is back, our fourth show uh, that we are doing this after this homestand. That look, it, it didn't go the Angels' way, no doubt about that. They played five games, played good teams, three games against the Strohs, another two against Colorado, and uh, come away only having one one of those games I understand the frustration right now but also gearing up towards a championship run in 2019 certainly something that is on the minds of lots of people want to make sure that this team gets right getting the young guys some experience and with that comes some growing pains uh, but uh, it's part of the deal the Angels uh, clearly have been disappointed with the way that much of this season has gone but still a lot of excitement here to finish the season strong we got a really good podcast coming your way a lot of great interviews from this past homestand that we're excited to share with you right here on the podcast. We're going to have Taylor Ward, the Angels' new third baseman, 2015 first-round pick, make the switch from being a catcher to playing third. I had a good chat with Taylor Ward. We're going to have that for you. I had a conversation with David Fletcher earlier this week. He was out at an autograph signing in Laguna. Lots of fans showed out in big fashion Uh, For that one, had a good chat uh, with David Fletcher. We have that coming up for you. How about this? I'm going to make a case for Shohei Ohtani for American League Rookie of the Year. There's a lot of chatter about this right now. Is it going to be in in New York, Ohtani with the Angels? Who's it going to be for AL Rookie of the Year? We're going to address that and talk about that uh, coming up. Plus, I talked with Shohei Ohtani earlier this week about his pitching rehab as he gets it, uh, hopefully to make a return to the bump in the very, very near future. So we got that for you. Plus, Chris Epting in the house had a great chat with him. Uh, All kinds of baseball history. Really fun, new information. Uh, At least it was new to me, about Angel Stadium and uh, the Angels' place in the history of the game. Incredible stuff. Really excited uh, to share that again with you guys coming up here on this podcast. But first, let's go to the series opener against the Houston Astros. First game of the five-game homestand. A really emotional day. For one, it was Mike Trout's return. Uh, after he'd missed all that time with the wrist injury and and then after the passing of his brother-in-law, Aaron Cox. His very first swing, actually was the first pitch that he saw, Trout would end up hitting a triple there. Also an emotional night for a different reason for another Angels player. Taylor Ward, playing in his very first home game, did this in the seventh inning. Here's a high fly ball that's lifted deep into left center field
1: and it is out of here.
0: Taylor Ward's second career homer comes in his first professional game at Angels Stadium. That was really exciting to see. Then the next day, I had a chat with Taylor Ward down in the Angels clubhouse. Last time I saw you in this building before yesterday, 2015, you had just been drafted. I know that was an exciting time for you to be able to come back into this building for the second time and then to go yard in that first game. What was that experience like for you?
2: It was wonderful. I had a lot of family and friends here, and um, to be able to do that with them here, I mean, it was really special. Of course, being my first time here, you know, since I was drafted, I mean, that made it even better. So um, pretty happy.
0: What were the emotions like for you? I know that, you know, you had get called up on the road, but to come back here and playing in front of the home fans for the first time, obviously they had been following you on that road trip, seeing the success that you had. What was it like for you to come here for the first time and, and get that experience?
2: I was probably the most nervous since i've been up here honestly um i mean just having fans you know that are cheering for you and you know rooting for you guys i mean just made made it you know just a little bubbly inside i guess and um i mean uh, i'm I'm glad that i was able to do what i did last night for him
0: how would you describe the day that you got called up and everything that happened there and being able to make your big league introduction in san diego obviously had a great game there but what was that day like for you
2: Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, a day I'll never forget. Just being able to walk into a big league clubhouse for the first time as a major league baseball player, you know, it's, it's awesome. So, uh, and to do it in a place like San Diego with their ballpark that they have in that city, uh, it was it was wonderful.
0: I know that a lot of people have talked about the adjustments you made from being a catcher now playing third base. I think people probably don't understand all the ins and outs. Like, How would you describe what's been different about your ability to approach hitting since you've made that position change?
2: Yeah, definitely being able to get into the cage when I would usually be catching bullpens or doing something else to prepare for the game and the hitters that we're about to face as a catcher. Now I'm able to go in the cage for an extra hour and a half and continue to work on you know, all the things that I did in the offseason to get to this point.
0: But at some point, I mean, it's, it's got to be a little bit humbling in the sense that, look, you're a catcher. That's what you're trying to do. You want to be able to do that and hit. That's what you did in college. And you want to say, hey, I can do that at the big league level. So for you, um, was it was it really tough to make that call?
2: Um, from To go from catcher to yeah. third base? Yeah, absolutely. When it happened, uh, you know, it was pretty, like, it, there was a lot of emotions going on, and I'm um, just – you know, looking back on it, I know that it was it was in the best interest for me in my career, and being able to be here now, I mean, I'm I'm very happy, and you know, all the hard work that I put in at third base to get to this point, and all the hard work that put I put in with my bat to get to this point, I mean, it's pretty amazing, and you know, I couldn't be any happier right now, and hopefully, I can continue to you know show what I've been doing in the minor leagues out there.
0: Talking with Taylor Ward right now. Taylor, I saw you when Mike Trout was rehabbing at Inland last year. I know you spent a lot of time with them. When when, when Trouty goes there and there's all the hoopla on his recovery as he's trying to come back, a lot of attention. Uh, But at that point, you're playing single-A baseball. How far away did the big league seem at that point for you to be where you are now just over a year later?
2: I guess sitting where I am now, it feels like a long way away. But when I was there, it really didn't feel... The way it feels now, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when when I was there, I was trying to be as consistent as I could defensively, and whatever happened offensively, great. And I was able to do that and get moved up to AA that year, or towards once mm-hmm. you know Mike left. And um, but just being able to have him there and watch him, I've never been able to watch you know his BP before, and watching that was obviously impressive. And you know that he talked to us a lot and. And we asked him questions, and you know we, we learned a lot from him. So having him there was was good for good for us as a team.
0: I know you're only a little over a week in. What's it like? What's the best part about being a big leaguer so far?
2: Definitely the lighting in the stadiums. <laughs> it's it's so bright here, and as a hitter, you can see everything on the baseball. So um, with me and my play discipline, I'm really excited for that.
0: Taylor, appreciate it, and good luck! Congratulations. Thank you. Love the chance to talk to Taylor Ward. I mean, this is a guy that had been through so much. I mean, really, he wasn't hitting at all as a catcher. And you started to wonder, hey, for a first-round pick, uh, is this guy ever going to make it to the big leagues because his hitting was so poor, even though he was always pretty good defensively. Well, now he moves over to third base. And, you know, for the reasons that he talks about, and I'm sure others as well, that Taylor Ward is tearing the cover off the ball. He's been a little hot and cold here at the major league level. That has a tendency to happen. It even happens. Uh, for Mike Trout. Remember when he first came up uh, six years ago. Uh, Also, another rookie that has made an impact on this team is David Fletcher. Now, David Fletcher was out in Laguna signing autographs with Frankie Arcia just this past Saturday, and it was an absolute blast out there. Hundreds of fans lined up, like filled up the entire shopping center. It was awesome. Uh, Those guys spent a long time signing some autographs, and I had to talk to Dave the next day. I said, look, man, It's crazy. You are Mr. Popular now here with these Angels fans.
3: Yeah, it was was really cool to meet all the fans and uh, see so many people there um, that wanted to meet us and get our autograph.
0: Is it different for you? I I guess maybe you don't know any different, but like being the local guy playing for the hometown team. I mean, that must be a a pretty unique and pretty cool feeling, right?
3: Um, Yeah, it's really cool to kind of represent this area and. Um, like you said, be a hometown player.
0: Now that you've kind of got a little bit of big league experience, spending quite a bit of time here now at this point in the year, uh, how has uh, this been for you so far in making that adjustment? Like how comfortable are you feeling now at the major league level?
3: Um, I'm feeling feeling a lot more comfortable and uh, getting a chance to play every day. So uh, it's been it's been really cool.
0: In terms of kind of relationships, like in this clubhouse, who are some of the guys like you spent time with here on the team? Yeah.
3: Um, I mean, actually, a lot of guys. Simmons, uh, I kind of learned a lot from him. Uh, Kinsler before he left. Just being able to watch those guys and and talk to them about situations, I've I've definitely learned a lot.
0: Yeah, like what kind of lessons? Like, can you? What kind of lessons? Like, can you learn from a guy like Kinsler? Guys like Simmons, like great defensive players, have been really good for a long time.
3: Just the way they they go about their business, the way they see certain situations, and kind of little things throughout the game.
0: Now that we approach kind of the final month of the season, what are some goals for you? Like what are some things that you're trying to do here in the final month?
3: Um, My goals, I just try to take it day by day and um, do my part to help the team win and try to get better.
0: Appreciate it, Fletch. Always good seeing you. Thank you. Thanks, David Fletcher, for giving us some time. And while we're talking about rookies, how about this? I think Shohei Ohtani needs to be Rookie of the Year. Hear me out. All right, let me make the case for a second for Shohei Ohtani to be the American League Rookie of the Year. Now, I did pose this question out there on Twitter and got quite a bit of feedback, which I thought was pretty cool. I asked, will Shohei Ohtani be named the American League Rookie of the Year? Not should he, will he? And of the Angels fans that follow me on Twitter, at Trent Rush Sports, 56% of you said yes, 44% said no. And there were a lot of interesting comments. This one from Janet Planet 5 who wrote in, if he hadn't gone on the DL and if he had continued pitching as great as he was, he would have been a show-in. Good one there. Uh, But with Gliber Torres and Miguel Andujar uh, tearing it up and being Yankees, sadly that matters too much, I just don't think it's that realistic. Kevin Dietz saying uh, Andujar is going to win it. Otani deserves a lot more national recognition, though. He is amazing. Uh, Hops Monster says, I say yes, but just like Trout, his competition is on far better teams, and some voters seem to like to focus on that instead of the player. Uh, Patrick O'Keefe says, the guy on the Yankees, deserves it more. Uh, S. Duper at Halos and Pizza says, History will show the crazy unique athlete Shohei is. He doesn't need a Rookie of the Year or Player of the Month or Player of the Week. He is an international man of mystery. Patrick Rico says, I voted yes, but East Coast bias always screws us. Uh, Bobby from the Bronx. Let me take a guess on what he thinks about this. He says, If Otani pitched all year, okay, but he hasn't pitched since like early June, and he's a DH. Um, that was a, an interesting thought there, especially since Enduhar is a really poor defensive player. Thomas Shea says, I say yes, and look at the MLB social media accounts. They post every Otani home run and have been pushing him like crazy. Only Enduhar rivals Otani, but Otani is a higher OPS with 15 home runs to Enduhar's 21, and Otani having way fewer at bats. It got me to this thought. I want to look at some of the numbers here because the numbers do make an impact. Because basically, the easiest way to compare players is by looking at numbers. The best way is to be watching them all the time. But that's a lot of effort. And I don't know who's voting on this. I don't know what group of writers are because I know it varies by region. But for those guys, I mean, we get to see Shohei Ohtani every day. We know what Shohei Ohtani does. I'm not sure everybody knows that. And I don't know what Miguel Andujar is doing every day. I see more American League games and National League games. And I'm keeping track of what's going on. But I'm not necessarily watching Enduhar every single day. I'll tell you, Duhar has nearly double the amount of plate appearances. He's sitting 322 homers, 74 RBI, and that's the guy that's on pace for the rookie triple crown. Yes, he plays on a better team. Yes, he plays in a bigger market. Yes, he has the better traditional stat line. But this is a guy that, if you want to compare defense, his defense is poor. Kleber Torres, another one. 269, 22 homers, 58 driven in. He had that hip injury that basically caused him to miss most of July. I think that's going to hurt him. In fact, if he would have been healthy the whole way, and if you ended the rookie of the year conversation after June, it would have been Torres for sure. But Shohei Otani is able to bring multiple layers. As far as war goes, and this is a, a stat that I don't love. I, I do not love war, but I'll, I'll still say this about Shohei Otani. He has a 1.8 war as a position player, 1.1 war as a pitcher. You combine that to 2.9, that's better than in Duhar, uh by over half a point. Okay, over half a win. As a pitcher, Shohei Otani, 4-1 record, 3.10 ERA, 61 strikeouts, and 49 and in third innings. That's really good. I mean I mean that is really good, but a really small sample size. As a hitter, 276 15 homers, 46 RBI. That's really good too. And Otani obviously doesn't play defense, he's not on a playoff team. Otani the hitter I think is good but not good enough based on the amount of at-bats to be American League rookie of the year. I think it's really good, not better than a doer. Ohtani, the pitcher, I think is great. I think that Ohtani, the pitcher, is going to be a Cy Young guy if he stays healthy. But because of this injury, that's not good enough either. If, if he was just the pitcher, if you take just his pitching numbers, that's not good enough to be American League Rookie of the Year. But when you put those two together, and this is the thing that voters are going to have to understand, I think it gives him a very legitimate chance. I think based on numbers alone, aside from the fact that this is a historic season, He's doing something that hasn't been done in a century. Aside from the fact that he's among one of the most exciting players in baseball, Shohei Ohtani is a guy, you stop what you are doing to watch Shohei Ohtani. Despite being a guy that is playing on the West Coast, and in theory a smaller market, not playing for the Yankees, you stop what you're doing to watch Shohei Ohtani. I just know from the MLB Network appearances that I do, and talking with their producers over there, and and when I when I go on their shows, they oh, they they ask me about Trout and they ask me about Otani. Boom. I've tried talking about Anderson Simmons a lot, and uh, my case doesn't get all that far because nationally, they want to talk about Trout and Otani, and I think to have Otani in that mix, I think is a good thing that Otani is seen nationally, and that's going to help him, I think. But you put what he does as a pitcher and hitter together, he's a very viable candidate based on the stats alone, aside from the fact that he is electrifying and he is a can't-miss player. It's been really fun watching Shohei Ohtani this year. I think that he should win American League Rookie of the Year. That's my stance, that Ohtani absolutely should be. I shouldn't say absolutely. That Ohtani will be, in my opinion, the American League Rookie of the Year, that he deserves that. But it's really close because Enduhar is outstanding. And it's gonna be a it's gonna come The final month is gonna decide a lot. And I'll say that Otani, if Otani does not if Otani's pitch sample in September is really limited and we don't see that much of him on the mound, I think Nduhar probably is ultimately going to win it, even though I think it should be Otani. If Otani, let's say, has three starts. And is able to give you anywhere from 10 to 15 innings, and he pitches the way he did before the injury. Oh my gosh, slam dunk! It needs to be Otani. So there's my take on that subject. But is Otani going to pitch again in September, or when is he going to pitch? What's going to happen when he does do that? Well, there was a lot of chatter over the past week and over this last homestand about that. In fact, I had a chance to talk with Shohei Otani a little bit about that, and we'll bring that to you in just a second. Hey, join the Angels for Ducks Night coming up on Friday, September the 14th, as they face the Mariners. 7 p.m. fans in attendance are going to receive a celebratory duck call while supplies last for more information on ducks night visit angels.com promotions then the next night nick jonas is going to be playing a concert that's on september the 15th so uh, a busy couple of days coming up uh, when the angels get back from this 12-day trip so here's the deal with Shohei otani the pitcher right now the plan for otani is if and when he does come back in the month of september he's going to be on the pitching once-a-week game plan that he was on uh, most of the time before his injury. So it's going to be the once-a-week plan. Uh, if he comes back in the next week or so, then I would imagine that he's probably going to make uh, two or three starts, I think is, is probably what we're going to see from Shohei Otani. there. He did toss a 50-pitch sim game. That just happened a couple of days ago, and we caught up with Shohei after that sim game and just asked him if he felt like he was ready uh, to return to this major league team as a pitcher now.
2: Personally, I feel like I don't need any more simulated games, but that's not up to me. Ultimately, it's going to be up to the coaching staff and the training staff, so i got to talk to them first.
0: What did you feel you were able to accomplish in today's workout? Just building off of
2: what I did, what I've been doing the last couple of times, but I had one, one more extra up and down inning. One a total of three innings, so that was good. And extend my pitch count, too.
0: Shoei, how do you feel about how this whole process has gone? Because I know it probably seems like it's taken a long time for you.
2: So I felt like they were very, being very careful with me. No rush, there's absolutely zero rush. and I think they did a really good job, too. You know, if I could make a comeback in September, I think they did a really good job.
0: So that Shohei Ohtani through his interpreter, the famous Ipe, for taking care of business there. Thanks to both of those guys. Uh, now let's take a little history lesson. And this is this is really fun. We, we've had Chris Epting on a few times. He's a friend of the show, uh, author, historian. There's lots of places that you can check out his work. Go to ChrisEpting.com. He's got really good stuff. You can follow him on Twitter as well. I'm always retweeting uh, Chris's work on Twitter. Uh, talking about the history of Angel Stadium. Talking about lots of different ball. Parks, uh, and that's what he does. He goes around the West Coast, checks out different ballparks, and uh, is just a great baseball historical mind, and, and wants to share that uh, with us. And we really appreciate him coming down into the studio. Chris, I got to ask you about this first. You were just telling me before we turn the mics on here that the curse of the Bambino
1: actually has Los Angeles roots. Tell me how that could be. This blows people away. In my book, roadside baseball, this is my attempt to really go find. Every little spot that's been brushed by baseball history since the beginning, right? This is my journey... To, to find those places. And it involves a lot of kind of detective work. But this is one of my favorite stories because The Curse of the Bambino, I think everybody plays it. It's a New York Boston thing. It's an East Coast baseball story. What people don't realize though was that in early 1920 in January, Babe Ruth left the cold of New York winter, came loved California, came to California and the Yankees needed his signature on that contract to, to secure him, to make it official. So manager Miller Huggins takes a train from New York, all the way to California to track down, to hunt down Babe Ruth for the final signature. Again, this is before we had, you know, cell phones. You couldn't just call somebody up. He comes to California and Huggins gets lead that Babe Ruth is playing golf. Ruth was a big golfer at that point. He just learned a few years before. Loved the game. That Babe Ruth is playing on a municipal course at Griffith Park. Today it's called the Warren G. Harding course. He goes out. He finds... He tracks him down on the 18th hole. If you go to the 18th hole today... There is a small marker at the spot, a little plaque that says on this site, this is exactly where Miller Huggins confronted Babe Ruth with the contract and got this signature, making him a New York Yankee. Thus, this is the birthplace of the curse of the Bambino in Southern California. 10 minutes from dodger stadium is where ruth became a yankee
0: uh, that is absolutely mind-boggling when you tell me that I, i'm just chris i'm fascinated by uh the things that you have found on, on this journey you're on Your the third edition of roadside baseball B- what you just live everyone everyone's baseball dream just to get taking a road trip across the west coast seeing all these ballparks
1: i love it you know and again my son who's now 24 who's who's a great baseball fan. I love taking him along because he's always kind of been my partner in crime on this. We were as part of this journey last week up in Dunsmuir, California, right by the Oregon border. There's a little... 1800s ballpark there. It's still there intact. The stands are still intact. Babe Ruth played a game there in the early 1920s. There's a little plaque that tells the story of the day. And I guess it's a little logging town, you know, a couple of hundred people back then. But you look at photos and imagine what it was like that day that Babe Ruth came and played. And we played, we had a catch on that field, you know. And you think about what, what the turnout was like and what people were thinking to see this, you know, famous Babe Ruth in a place like that. Those are places I love, those little out of the way spots that, again, that greatness touched, you know, and I uh, had another very special experience done in San Diego, the Pacific Coast League. Lane Field is where the p- original Padres played. But there was an incident there in 1945. that's really notable. Two weeks before Brooklyn Dodger owner Branch Rickey w- made the announcement to the world about Jackie Robinson. He wanted to bring Jackie Robinson to Lane Field secretly under the radar to have a photo session done with three people in the park. Branch, a photographer from Look Magazine, and Jackie Robinson. Mr. Ricky knew he needed images of Jackie Robinson playing ball, running the bases to kind of present to people and say, look, he's a real ball player. And I went down to, to Lane Field where it used to be. There's a park there today with an actual baseball diamond. There's a, there's a home plate, batter's boxes, and a pitching mound in the exact spot. And so you stand there, and I thought about that day when, you know, Jackie Robinson, he knew what was going on. Branch Rickey knew what was going on. And the photographer knew. They were the only three guys in that park. What was it like knowing that in two weeks they were going to change the world? They were going to do something so dramatic and so profound that we still talk about it today. You know what I mean? Places like that give me me goosebumps thinking about it. That, to me, is the heart and soul of roadside baseball. Those places you might pass by every day and not know that on that site— you know, history was made. Whether it's a, you know, whether it's where Babe Ruth signed the contract for the Yankees, or where Jackie Robinson really became prepared to sort of, you know, come out as a Brooklyn Dodger, those are the places that just keep me up at night.
0: I just know, like in, in San Diego, like they're so proud of Ted Williams and like that whole connection and all that. But I like, get the Jackie Robinson story and the fact that that was right there. I had no clue.
1: And then you know, from that, as you mentioned Ted Williams. After that moment at Lane Field, I drove about five miles to Ted Williams' boyhood home. It's a little, you know, kind of dilapidated one-story bungalow. And I stood outside that house and then walked around the corner to Ted Williams' field, as its named today, where he first learned how to play baseball. You start connecting those dots of the great players and where they learned how to play. And that, then the heart and soul of baseball becomes real to you, you know. And you think, wow, what was it like if you stood here in the 30s, Ted Williams, this kid, would have walked out of this house You know, the greatest treat of all time, ultimately, it all started right on this site, you know, and those are the places, again, that to me are the essence of a book like Roadside Baseball, finding those little out of the way places that cast such huge shadows in terms of the game.
0: Chris, I'm curious about the Angels place in the PCL League and how this all came to be and and how uh, before Gene Autry ever created the MLB expansion franchise uh, that we know today. What was the Angels' place in the PCL and and where this all began?
1: They were a great team. I mean, the Angels played at the original Wrigley Field, not far from USC. It was over at Vernon and, I believe, 42nd. In, in L.A. And, you know, that field, Wrigley Field L.A. had Ivy before Wrigley Field Chicago. Of course, they were both owned by William Wrigley, who also owned Catalina Island, which right. is why the Chicago Cubs for 30 years spring trained on Catalina. So really owned all these these things. And and the Angels were, were a very compelling part of Pacific Coast League baseball. When they became a major league team in 61, they played their first season at Wrigley and their last season. Ultimately, Wrigley Field is also where the show Home Run Derby was shot um, back then. They they chose Wrigley Field. A lot of movies were shot at Wrigley Field uh, prior to the Yankees. Uh, the show home run derby so the Wrigley you know the Wrigley experience was very special to people but the Angels were were a very formidable part of Pacific Coast League Baseball they helped prepare people for I mean I love the fact that they became a major league franchise not every PCL team did that the Padres did but you know Sacramento didn't um, the San Francisco Seals didn't but the Angels did persevere because they were popular they fielded good teams back then and they were very much a a part of the, the PCL legacy.
0: And when you're considering just the different homes that the Angels have had, the first season was at Wrigley Field as a major league club couple years at Dodger Stadium. They shared Dodger before Stadium. I mean, yeah.
1: you know, the, for several years, that you imagine sharing a ballpark like that. I remember as a kid, when I grew up in New York, when Yankee Stadium was getting refurbished, the the uh, Yankees and Mets shared Shea Stadium for a few years. Same kind of thing. What was cool about that, there was baseball like every day at yeah. that ballpark. And at Dodger Stadium, uh, even when the Angels shared, it was the same kind of thing. There was a lot of action up there. But, of course, thankfully, they got their own home down here and began starting their own history in 1966.
0: I'm a ballpark guy. I love Angel Stadium for that. When I graduated high school as an 18-year-old, we went back east with a couple of my friends, tried to hit every ballpark on the East Coast we could find. As you're on this road trip now and you're seeing all these parks on the West Coast, What are some of the interesting things that you found at at some of these major league ballparks that really stand out to you?
1: What I love at a lot of the newer parks is how they they celebrate their own history. Up in San Francisco at AT AT&T Park, they just opened a thing called The Vault, which is their own giant uh, museum there. Uh, And and I love you go in there and and with the exhibit right now is it's the Giants moved from New York out west in 1958. So they've got old pieces of the polo grounds and old Willie Mays jerseys, the original last home plate from the polo grounds. So that that to me is, again, I love when teams celebrate their own history and present it in a way that's compelling and really tell the franchise history because we forget the franchise history sometimes. We know kind of the current state of things, but we don't realize a lot of Giants fans don't know the New York Giants history and what that was like going all the way back to the early 1900s. So I liked that a lot. Um, Seattle, uh, Safeco—they do a nice job. They have kind of a similar small museum. Um, they just opened, but I like to again go visit the Major League ballpark in Seattle. I went to find the original site of Six Stadium, which is where their Pacific Coast League team played, and it's a Lowe's, you know, home improvement place now. <laughs> Yet in the in the lumber loading dock you can find a marker that sits exactly where home plate was and it's like so you stand there and you think okay once you know where that is then you can fill in the rest of the park around you and imagine what it was like at sixth stadium you know so those to me are the fun places or where stadiums used to be you know and I, I love going. It has been kind of a movement in the last couple of years, which is why I'm doing the new edition of the book, where a lot of cities want to celebrate the old parks. So they're putting down plaques and yeah. markers, and they're really showing people where, even if there's not, nothing there anymore, they're still helping you walk back through those memories by acknowledging where it used to be.
0: I was going to say, like, that's cool that in the lum- in the Lowe's Lumberyard, like, they have that place there, because I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of places that, oh, that stadium's down. Why are we going to put a marker there? The that they're preserving the history at least in that sense is a cool thing to me
1: yeah it would be great if the park was still there obviously but I know times and what they are you can't save every place you know but you look at like the site where Memorial Stadium in Baltimore used to be thanks to Cal Ripken Jr now that's the the field is restored there kids can go play baseball there you know Yankee Stadium where the old Yankee Stadium used to be there's a field where that used to be in Detroit where Tiger Stadium used to be you know there's a field there now so again there is this movement I think where people they want they realize there are precious memories at those sites. And, you know, thankfully, you know, God forbid Angel Stadium never be here. If that ever happens, you know, there's got to be some protection and preservation of the memories that take place here. Fifty years is a long time to play baseball at one spot. We're lucky. Angel Stadium is the fourth oldest ballpark in the major leagues right now. You know, Dodger is third. How does it happen? Oakland is is fifth. How does it happen now that the three, four, and fifth oldest ballparks are are in California. You know, it's crazy to me that we've lost so many classic ballparks.
0: When we had you on before, Chris, we talked about the 1967 All-Star Game here at Angel Stadium. I mean, there's there so much rich history, I think, at this ballpark. People
1: forget about it. Like, even on the music side, like, great concerts have been at this place. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you go back to the early 70s. The Who performed Tommy here in its entirety, and that kind of kicked off these this concert season. I mean, from the Rolling Stones. I've interviewed the guys in Kiss, Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley a number of times, they cite their 1976 show here as the ultimate game changer. It was the very first baseball stadium show they'd ever done, very first stadium show at all. Tell me the pressure that was on them, had they not filled this place and really made their mark here, their career might have gone another direction. And so they did sell it out. It's one of their biggest shows in history. And so to hear the guys in KISS talk about what it was like here, Uh, Again, the Rolling Stones, U2, I mean, everyone's played here. And I think the concert history is important, especially in the '70s, where where the outdoor kind of the festival experience was a big deal, you know. And Angel Stadium was was a hotbed for that, you know. And I hear from people almost every day. I did a book on the music history of Orange County, and people talk about the shows they saw here. And I always think, look, I've seen the Rolling Stones here, I think three times, you know. Great, fond memories, and uh, and I love the fact that Angel Stadium is so versatile that it can accommodate that it did accommodate events like that because it makes it more than just a ballpark, it makes it sort of a, communi- a community gathering area. And I think every city needs that. And Angel Stadium, in a lot of ways, is a very important emotional place for people.
0: In- including Richard Nixon, who-, who grew up here. And I know that it was actually funny Chris I uncovered it's on YouTube there is an old Angels Baseball Radio Network pregame show that still exists with Dick Enberg interviewing Richard Nixon which I got a kick out of It was I actually got to listen to it the night before the first time I ever hosted that show which I thought was the coolest thing in the world to me to get a chance to hear uh, that interview and that conversation and you know I, I, the 89 All-Star game Ronald Reagan's a huge part of it there's been a lot of political history at this
1: place as well. Absolutely I was epic. That 89, 89 game too. So you saw Bo's home run here, and that was a that was a great All-Star game as well. But you talk about those things, and yeah, there's there's political history. There's, you know, the great, the monster truck history. Um, there's been a lot, you know, the, even like the high school football. I mean, again, you know, you get the Rams history here. Angel Stadium encompasses a lot of different things for people locally. And that's why I hope it's here for a long time. I, I, I think it's a place that is certainly worth celebrating. And you know what? It's a great, comfortable park. I have friends come out from New York and visit, and they'll say, do you know how spoiled you are to have a place that's so easy, so convenient? Great sight lines. Um, But I think for me, what makes Angel Stadium the most important, the other night I was at a game here and I was down by the team store on the first level and where the screen it was showing highlights of the O2 postseason. I will get not just chills. I will get tears in my eyes thinking of those series here. That, for me, is really where everything came together from a baseball standpoint. For every fan that was lucky enough to experience those games in O2, we were here at every one. My son, who was eight years old then, that, to me, is really what solidified this place as, as a historic venue. Because what happened in that postseason— um, I don't care what. That, to me, that's one of the great postseasons yeah. in baseball history. And a lot of the, I know the East Coast snobs didn't pay as close attention to it, but baseball people who understand baseball knew that what the Angels did that year was was almost unprecedented, and remains just one of the great postseasons.
0: The wild card team, nobody believed in that unbelievable nobody. run, and, and to beat Barry Bonds the year after he had just set the record—it's
1: crazy. Oh my God! And to beat the Yankees, yeah. you know, when the Yankees came in. You know, uh, it was so daunting, but they did that. And then what, You know, to watch Adam Kennedy against Minnesota soon after. Oh, the stories that evolved out of that series, and to have a seven-game series like that down to the wire, to have, you know, I had been at games, in 1986, I was at game six at Shea State, the Bill Buckner game. And that to me was what you know. There would never be a better game six than that. Well, you know what? The game six here, we're sitting in the ballpark, yeah. and people around me in my section, we we got to know as these ticket holders, were so down um, how that game was going. And I said, no, 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 no. You can't. I was at game six at Chase Stadium. You cannot. One thing I learned is you cannot <laughs> give up. You you can't give up. The Mets were down two runs in the tenth. You got to believe. You got to hang in. And look what happened. That game six here, yep. to me, topped. The Mets Red Sox game, you know, so. So no O2 for me is really when this place became it went from being a good park to a great park where something truly historic took place. Yeah. And again, for those of us who were there, you know, you never forget it. And watching those clips the other night, I was I was cheering. I was it was so emotional because you forget the stories on that team and that collection of guys and how it, it how chemistry can win a World Series. That was my total takeaway from that series, how those guys got along, those relationships, what they did. And to see guys like Salmon and, and G.A. and Ersta finally get that moment, you know, was just was worth it all. The Spezio home
0: run, the Anderson double. I mean, there was so much there. And, and I'm glad you brought that up about the chemistry, too, because... When you think about the, the names that are still so associated, the names that are immortalized in Angels baseball lore, it's the guys like Tim Salmon who's always around, and and Garrett Anderson who just got inducted into the Hall of Fame right. here, at the Angels Hall of Fame last year. You know, I, I've still been able to keep a, a pretty good relationship with Adam Kennedy and Troy Percival. I could have never gotten to know those guys uh, if I didn't have this job. But that's who I remember, and I think that I'm not alone in this. That that's who that's who Angels fans remember because that was that was the pinnacle. That
1: was it the the World Series champs think of what Eckstein did in terms of galvanizing a team and a city and and what that story was like you know what I mean think of K-Rod I mean again these stories these 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 stories of those stories it would have been a lot the Angels had dozens of those stories you know and what it did to energize the fan base and, and I think it just earned a lot of respect around baseball to finally have it done like that and to do it the way they did it against a team like that Giants team which was a great team with its own great stories as well you know um, it, to me, it was just as dramatic as it got. And it when you, know, when you stand down there, when you talk about like roadside baseball and historic artifacts and all these things, when I see Darren Erstad's mitt downstairs and the ball and the jersey, that's it. You know those those elements when you think of him that, that last out. You know you're watching. It. Is he going to catch that ball? Is it going to stay in the park? And you see him clutch that ball at the end. I think for every Angel fan, that was the moment. As many great moments as there were. Look, you had great teams in the '80s and really great stories. But in that moment, watching him catch that ball, everything became real. You know, did it? And they, you know, they did it in a way that was so heroic and so. Um, You know, so low key, because again, you didn't have a lot of stars on that team, but if you knew them, Locally, they were they were it was as lovable a team as you could have, you know. So I love writing about that team, and I love looking back at, at the, the photos I took back then, what I wrote back then. That to me is a big baseball fan. The 0-2 Angels will remain just you know as good as it gets.
0: Well, now it's going to be time to see if we can get another one of those World Series. That's yep. another thing too, right? We you, you can't get complacent. Two thousand two is no. a long time ago. It's it time is to get a long time. Another, ago. Time to get another one.
1: <laughs> it, no, it, it absolutely is. And look, since then we've had great players. Yeah great stories it's hard to win a world series you know but i think the angels uh regularly spoil us with great moves and great deals and interesting players and i love this current team i mean a lot of great stories and you got to hang in look if you're a fan it can't just be about your team winning i sat here plenty of years in the mid 90s and things were quiet and love that team no less if you're you got to be a real fan you know you can't just come around when they win. Chris, I I hope we have a lot more
0: opportunities to talk between now and then, but I am looking forward to the day to having you back in here to talk about the legacy of Mike Trout as well and where he (sighs) ranks among the greatest players of all time because I
1: think we get to see something truly special. And you cannot take that guy for granted. you got to kiss the ground and thank... Every thank your stars, you have that guy in your life yep. right now. Of course, because <laughs> in a hundred years, you know what they'll be talking about that guy the way they talked about DiMaggio and Mantle. I mean, he's he's one of those guys, you know. So I I agree with you. I would I would be a privilege to come back and talk about any top trend. Thank you. He's Chris Epting. You can find
0: so many of his books. I, I, for one, love baseball in Orange County. The third edition of Roadside Baseball is coming out, uh, coming up here in the spring. We're going to have Chris back between uh, now and then. But that was a really great conversation, Chris. Thank you so much. I just love talking baseball with you. I really appreciate it.
1: Anytime, my friend. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you
0: man Chris is the best you know what's fun too every time we have Chris on there's always like different coaches and members of the Angels staff to come up to me and say who is that guy I gotta know more about Chris Epting Uh, there's lots of places to find him at Chris Epting Uh, he has lots of good stuff there Uh, that's gonna just about do it for us here on this podcast want to thank Taylor Ward, David Fletcher Shoei Otani, Chris Epting all these guys uh, for chatting with us here on the program today lots of different stuff that you can always check out on our podcast you know how to find this one angels.com slash podcast be sure to check out some of our previous episodes. If you found us on iTunes or wherever it might have been, uh, make sure you rate us. Uh, give us some feedback. Uh, write some comments. In fact, if you want to send me an email directly, my email address trush at am830klaa.com Great way uh, to get connected there. would love to hear some of your thoughts uh, on the podcast. would you like? What'd you didn't like? And uh, we'll keep bringing you uh, more stuff. Who do you want to hear from next uh, as we go into the final month of the regular season? Uh, always lots of fun we have here on Angels Radio and around Angels Baseball, and we're glad we got a chance to share uh, some of our conversations with you here on this podcast. Once again, my name is Trent Rush. Thanks to all of you for joining us here on our fourth podcast. Have a great rest of your day, and looking forward to seeing you when the Halos get back on September 10th. Take care, everybody.